Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can be here tonight to be encouraged by your word and to be reminded that you have a plan for history and that no matter what happens in our day-to-day lives and no matter what happens in the world around us, no matter how uncertain, no matter how chaotic things might appear, we know that you are in control and that eventually things will get to a point, as they do in the tribulation, when things seem to be completely out of control and yet you are going to bring things to a perfect resolution as your justice brings all things to a conclusion. Now, Father, as we study your word tonight, we pray that we can focus and concentrate and once again be reminded of, of your plan and purpose and of the uh, tremendous veracity of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we're in Revelation chapter 12. Last time I focused on the fact that this is the chapter probably of all of Scripture that gives us the window into the war between Satan and Israel. And that war began in uh, Genesis chapter 12 when God first called uh, Abraham, Abram at that time, and told him to go to a land that he was going to give him. And with that announcement and what God revealed to Abram at that point, it became clear that that seed promise that God had begun in Genesis 3.15, the the seed of the woman would uh, uh, crush the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent, that that seed began to, promise began to move forward in history, down through Noah, down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, on down through David, and ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to Revelation chapter 12, that is the backdrop for understanding this, that there's a promise that God gave, focuses on the role that Israel has in God's plan, and in that role, as that role became obvious, Satan knew that he had to do something to attack Israel 
in order to block God's plan. In the Old Testament, the focus was to prevent the birth of this child, to, to somehow wipe out that seed that would come through the house of David. And so you have various attacks in the Old Testament against the southern kingdom of Judah in order to destroy uh, the line of David. And then after the cross, once Satan is defeated at the cross, then Satan's last-ditch effort is to somehow destroy the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that God is unable to fulfill the promises he made in the Abrahamic covenant. And Satan reasons that if he can wipe out uh, the Jews then God uh, can't really do, fulfill his promises. He can't be what, God, what he has claimed to be. He can't fulfill his plan, and therefore Satan wins. This is why the Jews have, as it were, a target on their backs for Satan. And this is the source of their persecution down through the ages. So you can just as well imagine that as they go through time, that Satan is going to develop uh, various philosophies and religions that are going to have as their focal point the destruction of Israel. And last time I ended with several quotes that I took out of the um, out of the Quran and the Hadith and other uh, Islamic literature, pointing out that that this is the very center of Islamic theology. This isn't just something they picked up somewhere along the line in addition to their core beliefs. And I am of the firm conviction that all false religions and all false gods, as clearly stated in, in various passages in the Old Testament, the worship of idols is the worship of demons, and that Satan and the demons lie behind all false religions. Second Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the god of this world. He is the god of this age. And Satan energizes these religions, false religions, ultimately to target Israel. And that is why we have this horrendous uh, battle going on today over the Temple Mount. And I read one of the quotes last time uh, from a Palestinian that ultimately the real issue is the Temple Mount. It's who controls the Temple Mount. It's not about Amer- this war on terrorism isn't ultimately about America. It is not ultimately about Israel and the land that they allegedly stole from the Palestinians. It is about controlling the Temple Mount. And Satan wants to control the Temple Mount. Of course, he's going to get it. That's what we saw at the beginning of Revelation uh, chapter 11. As as John saw uh, in that scene in Revelation 11 that there's a reed given him like a measuring rod and he's to measure the temple of God. And that is a sign that at the first part of the tribulation, there is still a measure of protection on the temple mount. But once the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped in that midpoint, the abomination of desolation, once that time comes, then uh, Jerusalem is completely under the dominion of, of the Antichrist and of the Gentile powers. And so we are always going to see Satan moving in history to accomplish that. And that's why there's always these rumbles in the Middle East. There's always this, this fighting that goes on. And ter- the war on terrorism is just an aspect of that. And if you don't have the Bible 
as your frame of reference to be able to discern what is going on and to even understand uh, what's going on in Islam and Islamic theology and how that fits within a broader scope and how this is ultimately goes back to that uh, battle between uh, Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob because the descendants of the of Ishmael and the descendants of, of uh, Esau are some of the Arabs that are fighting against Israel today. So this has a tremendous uh, tremendous history, and it helps us to understand that. And when we look at things that are going on in the world, we need to put on our uh, biblical glasses so that we can evaluate the the pushes and pulls, the tugs of war that are going on in the Middle East in light of that, and we can then evaluate what is going on in, in Washington. And it just amazes me that we have one group of politicians after another group of politicians, but they all want to assume today, and it's for a number of reasons we've gone into in the past, but they all want to assume today that these religions are not really all of that, all that potent, and that uh, it's really not, not ultimately a religious thing, that somehow we can find peace. And in the West, they make that assumption because they've given up on the idea for about four generations now that, that religion really means anything to anybody. It doesn't mean anything to them, at least not in the way it uh, is embedded in the thinking of, of, uh, of Muslims and informs all of their decisions. And they just look at history, they look at the world, they look at Israel in a completely different way than we do. And we, we're making serious mistakes when we think we can find a point of common ground to achieve peace in the Middle East. I think the first time there's going to be any real peace is when the Antichrist signs that peace treaty with Israel and peace occurs in Israel, not a worldwide peace, but peace in Israel for that first half of the tribulation. But one of the ways that we see Satan constantly working is the promotion of these ideas of anti anti-Semitism, and we've covered some of this before in the Western history. Western civilization has just um, has a terrible, terrible history of anti-Semitism that has infected so many, so many different things. And just one example I thought I would give you, one of those juicy little morsels that you, you dig out of history every now and then, um, uh, came, to my, um, came to my attention this last week. And it has to do with the translation of the King James Bible. So I just want you to stick your finger in Revelation 11 and just hold it there. And we're going to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, chapter 11. Or, excuse me, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now the first part of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 begins with a... Rehearsal of the failure of the Jews in the wilderness after the Exodus. Paul says, moreover, brethren, addressing the Corinthians, says, I don't want you to be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. Now, fathers refers to the uh, Exodus generation among the Jews. All passed through the sea, that would be the Red Sea, as they were, as God was delivering them in the first Exodus. Tonight, we're going to study the second Exodus. 
and Revelation chapter 12, but this is referring to the first exodus. They all passed through the sea. All were baptized, at, and the significance of baptism there isn't immersion. It has to do with identification with uh, someone. They were all baptized into Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. The cloud was the representation of God's presence leading Israel during the daytime. It was a pillar of cloud, and at night it was a pillar of fire representing the presence of God. And in the sea, that's the Red Sea, as they went through the Red Sea, they were leaving the shackles of slavery behind, and it is the a picture for us, a type. Now, this is where we're connecting some. It's, it's kind of fun tonight. We're connecting a lot of dots to Thursday night class in Hebrews and, and Sunday morning. It's, it's a, uh, the Red Sea is a type of what happens when the believer is baptized into Christ. We're identified with his death. Romans chapter 6, verse 3, which we'll get into some more on this coming Sunday morning. Baptized into the sea, that is a break with their old life of slavery in Egypt and their new life in freedom. And so that's the significance of that identification. And it's focusing on the fact that now they are going to be uh, free from physical slavery. And the type is... And a type, as we've seen, we've run across those words in Hebrews. We've got tupas, hupodegma, and skia, which were three words we looked at, uh, Greek words that are used in Hebrews a lot. And you've heard that phrase, uh, type of Christ, many times. And the word tupas, which is the Greek, the, the Greek word, indicates an impression made on something. So if it's the impression of a hard seal on the soft wax, you have one image on the on the hard seal and another on the wax. One, it would be the type, which is the shadow image or reflection. That would be what's on the on the uh, the stamp itself. And then the image it produces, that would be uh, the the antitype. And sometimes these words were used interchangeably, so that's where it gets a little confusing. But the Bible really doesn't use that word tupas in the way that... Uh, Later theology developed it as a technical term for specific things in the history of Israel in their worship that that specifically uh, pictured something in the related to the person or the work of Christ, so that a type becomes theologically speaking much more than simply a, 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 a pattern or sometimes I'll use the word of foreshadowing, something of that nature. A type means that in terms of it being a literal actual event is not so important as that God has sovereignly designed something to be the way it is, and it can't be any other way, so that it will teach something about Christ and will teach a lesson. So therefore, the conclusion from that would be that if it's if it really doesn't have any volition in being the way it is, God designed it that way. So the lamb, a lamb, sheep, or the way they are, God created lambs at the very beginning because he knew that he was going to use that lamb to be a picture of what his son would do on the cross. So a type is different from just an example. An example is just you can look at real historical events, real people, real things, 
and see certain patterns or similarities. And, and so the writer of Scripture is then using that to teach a lesson by, uh, by comparison or by analogy. Now, the baptism into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea, this is a type of the believer's baptism into Christ so that we have new life. That is, God designed history that way to bring the Jews out through the Red Sea so that that would be a picture of this break with the past, moving from slavery to freedom. And then verse 3 talks about all ate the same spiritual food, which is manna. And this is related uh, in Exodus chapter 16, verse 13, and also John 6:35, that this connects with the Jesus Christ is the bread of life. So manna is a type. It's the way it is to teach something about the person of Jesus Christ. And they all drank the same spiritual uh, drink when Moses uh, struck the rock and water came out from that. And the rock was Christ. See, the scriptures identify these things so you don't guess at them. And people take typology uh, too far when they go try to make everything that where they see just a, a pattern or a shadow image, something like that. They say, it's a type, it's a type, everything's a type. Well, type is a very strict term. Now, when you get to... Um, Verse 5 we read, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They died and sent unto death. Now we come to the verse I want to point out. Verse 6, now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. And the word there uh, that's translated examples could be translated as a type. It's tupas could be translated, in the King James, they translated it on ensample, E-N-S-A-M-P-L-E, which is an old English word meaning the same thing as an example. Now, the problem you get into, and I got into this when we were studying Bible study methods last year with some pastors and studying through a chapter in Roy Zuck's book on basic Bible interpretation, is how do you decide when the Bible uses the word tupas, is that what we mean by a type? And most places it's not. It's not a technical word. It's just more this idea of an example. But in the uh, group of 54 translators that were set aside by King James I of England when they were uh, the uh, Protestants had come to him wanting an authorization to translate a new Bible, and he had uh, decided to authorize that and had set up this committee Actually, it was made up of several committees of seven that were um, uh, the translation committee, and a total of 54 scholars, brilliant men, uh, incredibly gifted in their knowledge of the languages of Greek, Latin, uh, Hebrew, men who were skilled translators. They got into a huge debate over whether to translate the word here as a type or as an example. What was the issue? The issue was if Israel is a type for us, then they didn't have any volition in being disobedient because God made them that way to be a type. So that justifies anti-Semitism. And so you had a number of these translators were anti-Semitic in their orientation. 
Uh, and that's always been a problem in, in, in Christianity. So there were a number of them that were anti-Semitic and they wanted it to be a type because that would give them a rationale and justification that Israel was created disobedient in order to be a type uh, for us. But if they're an example, then that would mean that they were, uh, had just exercised their own volition to be disobedient, and so they're just an example, and that would not justify anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism has also reared its ugly head down through the centuries among Christians and in the church and various uh, theological systems, mostly within amillennialism or post-millennialism, have been used to rationalize an anti-Semitism the, under the idea that they are the Christ killers, they're the ones that uh, uh, rejected the Messiah that God had given them, and so God is now punishing them, and he has permanently removed them from a position of blessing. Permanently is their view. Now, that's important to understand all of that because that's the backdrop for understanding what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11, which is what I'm teaching uh, this coming Sunday morning. But you have to understand this, this backdrop of anti-Semitism. So now let's go back to Revelation 11. Today we have a problem because anti-Semitism has been disguised as anti-Zionism. And anti-Zionism is basically a position that uh, Israel doesn't have the right to defend herself against her enemies in the same way that everybody else does. And that is, it shows a clear double standard against Israel. Zionism is just basically the position that the Jews have a right to a homeland. And through legal processes, beginning in the early part of the 20th century up through their Declaration of Independence on May the 14th, their Independence Day is coming up in a little over two weeks, on May the 14th, 1948, they achieved a nation status and independence legally through the authorization of various documents, both from the British who occupied uh, uh, the area in, in uh, the 20s, 30s, and 40s, as well as through the United Nations. But Constantly, the Arabs refuse to admit they even exist. And if you read their stuff, you just hear that they constantly refer to the Jews as just that Zionist entity. They won't even uh, validate them as uh, as Israel. So anti-Zionism just rejects the validity of the nation of Israel. Uh, this is implied in their whole position and that they don't have the right to really defend themselves. And this isn't limited just to... Uh, Gentiles. There are many Jews who are anti-Zionist, especially uh, some of the more orthodox and uh, religious Jews, uh, because they don't believe that the Jews have a right to go back to the land until the Messiah actually returns and takes them there. So they would view the presence of, of a nation in the land as being as being anti uh, or as being illegitimate, so you can have a lot of Jews that are uh, anti-Zionist, and you see that today in the politics of Israel and the arguments that go back and forth between uh, the Likud, which is your more conservative party, and then the uh, the um, uh, workers' party and the other parties that are there that are more either moderate or, or leftist because and you see a lot of 
of um, a lot of Jews that are, let's you know, in their 40s and 50s, maybe some in their in their early 60s that are much more moderate than their than their parents who fought in the wars for independence back during the uh, in 1948 and other wars at that time. So this is kind of an odd thing. You look at someone, you see, well, their parents fought with uh, uh, in the war for independence, and and um, they were in the Haganah uh, or some of the other other units, and and their children want to give land back to the Arabs because they have a guilt complex. So they they just don't understand that divine viewpoint of their even their own uh, even their own history. Well, Re- Revelation. 12 really lays the foundation for the future of anti-Semitism. And we see this in the first part. I'm just going to review the verses very briefly before we go forward. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, the moon at her feet, and her head a crown of 12 stars. This is a picture of Israel, corporate Israel as a nation, the Those who have descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who are the recipients of the Abrahamic covenant um, promises. And this is the first of five signs we'll have here at the last part of Revelation. And so the this is that depiction, and she's with child. And that depicts the fact, as I've said, that, that historically Israel was going to bring forth a seed that would be the redeemer of the nation. And she cries out being in labor and pain to give birth. This is a picture of her suffering historically as Satan has assaulted and attacked Israel from the time it was known that she would be uh, the instrument for the Savior uh, up until the birth of the Savior and beyond. And then we read in verse 3, Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon. Now in verse 9, the great red dragon is defined clearly as, as Satan. But here we see the great red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, this is where things get a little confusing. And I've been confused by this passage because all of a sudden you get into this thing with with the heads and the horns and the diadems. And in one place you have seven diadems. In another place you have ten diadems or crowns. And you've got seven heads here and ten horns there and seven kingdoms here and ten kings there. And how do you put all of this together? And so that can be rather rather confusing, but we have to always come to Scripture with the assumption that God God isn't confused, and God did not reveal these things to us to obfuscate or to cloud or shroud the truth, but to reveal the truth, to enlighten us. And so it just means we have to think a little bit, and we'll figure it out. So in verses 3 and 4, we get a summary of the fall of Satan. At his fall, he drew a third of the stars of heaven uh, with him, threw them to the earth. These are the fallen angels, approximately a third of all of the angels God created. And he sent them to the earth. Might even be a better translation. It, throwing sounds like you're, you're just having a temper tantrum and it's, it's rather random and haphazard, like you might splatter something up against the wall. But Sending them, and balo here, the Greek word, can have that idea of being sent. 
and they have a mission, and that mission is to uh, stop God's work in human history. And part of that, of course, is trying to prevent the birth of the child. So the dragon is depicted in verse 4 is before the woman who is about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And of course, this is seen in Herod's attempt to kill the infants in Bethlehem and other attacks on Christ leading up to the crucifixion. Then we see another, um, then I want to go back to this verse. We, we've hit, um, let me see, i got one, maybe one verse out of order here. That's okay. Verse 5 says, Verse 5 says, she bore a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. That's clearly talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 6 says, the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, we'll come back and look at verse 6 in a minute. But for now, I want to focus on verse 3 because we have to figure this out. Somebody asked me, said, well, why is that really important? Well, it's important because it's in the Bible. And I can't just say, well, you know, it's seven heads and ten, ten horns and ten crowns. So that's somehow relates to the uh, end kingdom of the Antichrist. There's a little more to it than that, and it just took a little time with pen and paper to figure this out. So let's look at what we see in this particular verse. We see the dragon appear, and there's uh, three elements that are mentioned in this verse. And those three elements are the heads, the horns, and the diadems are crowns. So you just remember that. you got heads, horns, and diadems. Now, we're going to compare that to some other verses where you have the same thing, because in each one of these other verses, a different element is added. How interesting. But you can't figure out what they refer to unless you put them all together. So verse 3 says... Um, focused on the seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems. In Revelation 13.1, when we're introduced to the Antichrist, the first beast, he comes out of the sea, which is generally understood to be Gentile nations, and he has seven heads, ten horns, and on his horns are ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. So now we add new information. Uh, previously, the, the uh, seven heads had the seven crowns, and there were ten horns. In 13.1, we see there are seven heads, but the crowns are now on the ten horns. The heads have crowns. The horns also have crowns. The presence of the crown is to indicate that these are kings or these represent kings or kingdoms. Kings or kingdoms or dynasties. So both the seven heads represent seven kingdoms and the ten horns must represent ten kings or ten kingdoms. So we see that we have these three elements that uh, run together. Now to understand this, we have to go to the Old Testament, and you'll never guess what book we have to go to. It's Daniel. You can't understand Revelation if you haven't worked your way through Daniel, because all, almost all the symbols that come out in Revelation 
are first identified in Daniel. And I'm just going to guess maybe 80% of them. It's not 100%, but it's a large number. So the place where you should turn, and I'll put this up on the screen, but I want you to turn your Bibles to Daniel 7. And you can write in your margin some cross-references, and that will help you to put this together uh, later on as you uh, think through your notes. Daniel chapter 7. Now, Daniel 7 has an interesting structure, and in fact, uh, the chapter, chapter 2, which is your other great prophetic section that lays out the history of the kingdoms of man, uh, also has the same structure. And we see uh, a lot of redundancy here from the Holy Spirit, which means it's important, and he wants us to stop and pay attention because, first of all, we're told that the king had a dream or Daniel had a dream and tells us everything that's in the dream. And then uh, there's a pause and then there's an interpreting angel or in Daniel 2 there's the whole issue of who can interpret this, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And then the interpreter comes, or the, in, in Daniel 8 it's the interpreting angel, and the dream is restated and then it's explained. So it's like you go through the chapter and you go through this dream three times. You're saying, okay, enough already with the horns and the heads and the crowns and the beasts. But the point is that God is being very specific and meticulous in making sure we understand this because this isn't the kind of prophecy you get in um, some sort of astrology column in the in the newspaper that's just so general it could mean anything to anybody. It's very specific and it's all going to tie together perfectly with no contradictions, showing how accurate and precise God is. So in Daniel, uh, first part of Daniel 7, Daniel has this dream uh, while he is asleep at night, and he sees these four creatures. And these four creatures come out of the great sea. And so we see, what, what did I say in 13.1? 13.1, this first beast comes out of what? Comes out of the sea. See how it connects? So these four beasts are going to come out of the sea, and they're pictured as beasts because in this chapter, the kingdoms of man, in all of the glory that we think they have, as much as you love history, you may love to read about uh, Japanese history or Chinese history or you may love to read about the history of Britain or Europe, whatever it may be. These are all part of the kingdoms of man, and they're bestial. They're ravenous. This is not a positive image. This is a horrible image. The United States of America is part of that image of the kingdom of man that is part of the beast of man trying to solve man's problems on his own. This is not a good thing. And we often has a tendency in American history, going back to our Puritan forefathers, of thinking that we have a special place in the plan of God. And I think that in one sense uh, we do, because God has used us in a great way, but we're not any greater as a nation. We're a, we don't have a messianic call they had that, I mean, the, our Puritan forefathers believed that because of their eschatology, and they thought they were coming here to establish the new Israel. And if you read their sermons, they're always assigning to the United States and to various people in the United States these prophetic roles that go to the Messiah. 
And, of course, George III was the Antichrist. So everything's their, their whole understanding of their identity is mired in this false view of eschatology, false view of prophecy, and identifying uh, the, what they were doing as being something incredibly special in God's plan because they're establishing this new kingdom. And this kind of thinking has permeated American history. But there's it's still part of the kingdom of man. As patriotic as we are and as much as we love our country and love our history and we've had great people, it's still part of the kingdom of man. It is still part of Satan's uh, world system. And the government, the politics, and everything in this country are not going to bring perfect stability and happiness into the world. Now, that may really irritate some people who are listening to me and bother some people, but every nation, every kingdom until Jesus comes back is ultimately just part of Satan's cosmic uh, cosmic system. And so... It's all ultimately bestial, no matter how, how much glory they had, no matter how wonderful they were in many different ways. Ultimately, it all comes down to that. And so these four uh, kingdoms are, are described. At Babylon is the lion with the uh, eagle's wings, and Media Persia is the bear, the leopard is Greece. And then there's this fourth beast that comes along mentioned in verse 7 that is seen rising up out of the sea, and we, um, let me see, here we go, switch that slide. After this, I saw in the night visions, behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible and exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth, and we remember that the lower legs of the uh, statue that that, uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw in chapter 2 were iron. And then later, iron and clay. So he says these iron teeth, it's, it's devouring. This is just a, a picture of, of, of a empire that seeks its own glory and power for its own sake, and it doesn't matter who gets crushed in the process. Uh, it was different, though, from all the other beasts that were b- before it, and it had what? Ten horns. So we have ten horns here. Now this isn't some kind of, uh, you know, close your eyes, open your Bible, point your finger, come to a verse kind of exegesis. You, you look at the, the, what it's describing here, and it's the same thing that gets depicted over in Revelation 11. It's the same context in terms of the end of human history. And so you can make the connection that the ten horns here have something to do with the ten horns that are mentioned there. And so in verse 8, Daniel says, I was considering the horns. He's thinking about this. He's got to focus on this. How, how does this fit? What do these represent? And then there is another horn. This would be the 11th horn, a little one. So this is often referred to in Bible, by Bible teachers as Daniel's little horn. And the little horn is the Antichrist. And the ten horns, as we'll see, represent the these ten kings or kingdoms that form the confederacy of the Antichrist kingdom in the end times. They're depicted in the statue in Daniel 2 by the ten toes. So you keep running into this grouping of ten. 
So Daniel says, as considering the horns, there's another horn, a little one coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns are plucked out by their roots. What does that mean? And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous or arrogant words. Now when we say, what does this mean? We don't have to guess because the angel that appeared to Daniel uh, is going to interpret uh, interpret this uh, for him and tell him exactly what um, what this means so it's not guesswork. And we see this over in verse 23. So just sort of turn the page to verse 23 and we'll pick it up. Thus he said, that is the interpreting angel, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth. Now you have this history of these kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then Rome. Fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all of the other kingdoms and shall devour the whole earth. Not necessarily in the first manifestation of the Roman Empire, but in its final manifestation, it will devour the whole earth, trample it and break it into pieces. The ten horns are ten kings. Now that did not happen historically under the first manifestation of the Roman Empire. The ten horns are ten kings. What did we see over in Revelation? That those ten horns had ten crowns. So those ten horns are ten kings there. See, it's consistent. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. So there's two stages to this kingdom. There's a first stage when it doesn't have this division into ten, and then there's a subsequent stage when it is divided into ten. And another, that is this eleventh king, will rise after them. So what we're going to see in history is the uh, organization of these ten nations in this confederacy and then following that, this other king, the 11th one, will rise after them, and he will be different from the first ten. Something about him will mark him out as distinct, and he will subdue three of the kings. Probably in a military manner, he will defeat three of these kingdoms to consolidate uh, them into an empire. So three from ten is seven, right? What do we have over there? We had seven. So how does that fit? You had the seven heads. Are the seven horns that are left over here the same as the seven heads? That's where things start getting a little confusing, at least they did to me. So what we have here is the ten horns equal the ten kings of the Antichrist kingdom. Let's look at the next verse. He shall speak pompous or arrogant words against the Most High. So he's going to be anti-God, anti-Bible, anti-Christian, and he is going to ultimately, we know, set himself up to be God, and he shall persecute the saints of the Most High. These are the tribulation believers, and especially the Jewish tribulation believers. He shall intend to change time and law. Then the saints will be given into his hand for how long? A time, that's one period, times, two periods, and a half a time, or three and a half years. But the court shall be seated. This is the heavenly court of the Ancient of Days, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. And if um, you have time to read through the whole thing, what you see is there is a, a, um, a continuity between these kingdoms. Uh, there are things that develop in the Babylonian kingdom 
that even when Babylon falls, falls and the Persians take it over, they have absorbed certain attitudes, certain technologies, and other things into the Media Persian Empire, and so that continues. And then when the Persians are defeated by the Greeks, there are things with, that the Persians had developed and that they still had taken over from the Babylonians that continues. There is this, this stream of continuity on, uh, based on human arrogance and hostility to God. And it, then when Rome conquers the area of Greece, uh, Rome is in the ascendancy, but these things still continue that have their roots going back to Babylon. And so there's this continuity that runs all the way through historically. So you have a view of these kingdoms that runs down through time. It is chronological in its progression. Then you also see in Daniel that at the end of time, there are ten kings that form the basis of that ten-nation confederacy, three of whom will be uh, destroyed probably in a military manner by the Antichrist, the Little Horn, and then they're consolidated into his empire, and he uses that to go after believers uh, in the tribulation. So, back to Revelation chapter 12. Let's put, start putting these things together. Revelation 12, we have seven heads, ten horns. And the heads, the seven heads are seven kings. Question, are those seven kings, the ten king, the seven kings that are left over after the Antichrist wipes out three? Well, they're not. But that's, we have to answer that and show why they're not. Revelation 13.1, we have seven heads and ten horns, and the horns have crowns. So the conclusion here is both the seven heads represent kingdoms and the, seven, and the ten horns represent ten kingdoms. So we have two different sets of kingdoms, the seven horn kingdoms and the ten, the ten horn kingdoms and the, and the seven head kingdoms. Okay, seven heads, ten horns, both represents kingdoms. Daniel 7.24 identifies the ten horns or ten kings just as Revelation 13.1 does. Okay, what we see here is this, we can really trust the Bible. It's actually consistent. It always interprets itself perfectly. We don't have to guess. Now, we're going to go from Revelation 13 to Revelation 17. And in Revelation 17, we're going to see another view of this end-time kingdom. John says, so he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Now, at the end of chapter 12, we know that the wilderness is outside of Israel, uh, the boundaries of Israel out in the desert. Uh, Carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names and blasphemy, having seven horns, seven heads and ten horns. Ooh, now we run into the same seven heads and ten horns things again. This time it's on this red beast. Now the beast immediately connects us to the first beast, the second beast that we, that we will study next time in Revelation 13, which is the Antichrist and the false prophet. And the woman sitting on the scarlet beast uh, is the... Just a picture again of the of the future cosmic 
system. We'll get into all that imagery when we get there, but right now I want to focus on the heads and the horns. And the beast has these seven heads and ten horns. The red beast reminds us of the red of the um, red dragon that is Satan. So that connects together. Now, we look at 17.3, has seven heads and ten horns. That's the takes us back to the ten horns or ten kings in Daniel 7.24 as well as Revelation 13.1. So you have, what I'm saying here is you have two different groupings. You have a seven grouping, a grouping of seven that are called heads, and then you have another grouping of horns. I'm telling you, I've heard this or read something on this so many times I just get confused. I know you all have probably already uh, checked out, but we're almost done. <laughs> Revelation 17, 10, 11, and 12 gives us the interpretation. There are These are also seven kings. The seven heads are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is and the other is not. All of a sudden, we now learn about the heads that they're progressive or chronological. One comes after the other. Now, the five have fallen. These are five kingdoms that have fallen. What is the essence that defines these five kingdoms? Is this the kingdom of France, the kingdom of Charlemagne, the Third Reich? What kingdoms are these? These are the kingdoms that are pictured historically in the Old Testament as being hostile to Israel and that Satan used against Israel in the Old Testament. And what are they? It's, it's not Babylon, early Babylon, in terms of the Tower of Babel, because they're not antagonistic to Israel yet. You don't have an Israel. The first kingdom that's hostile to Israel is Egypt. Egypt enslaves them. They're slaves there for two or three hundred years. Then they come out, and then the next uh, empire that is hostile to them are the are the Assyrians. And you have the Assyrians, and then you have the uh, Babylonians, and then you have the Rome. The the then you have the uh, the Persians, and then you have the Greeks. Those are your five. You have Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, Persia, and Greece. And there's one that is. John's writing during the time of the initial stage of the Roman Empire. That's the one that is. And the other has not come yet. That is the future revival of the Roman Empire, the future revived Roman Empire. So the seven heads represent the continuity through history of the kingdom of man and its hostility to Israel. Verse 11, we read, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. What does that sound like? That kind of sounds like the we had those ten the the ten horns and then an eleventh one pops up that's going to take out three of them. That's the idea here. The beast that was and is not in itself also the eighth. This is another not part of the seven, but is another one that comes up. That's the Antichrist. There's something unique, distinct about him. He is of the seven. 
but he's the eighth and is going to perdition, destruction. Same word that's used to describe Judas Iscariot as the son of perdition. In the Greek, it's a word that is related to to the the apolumi, which is the word for those who do not trust in Christ in John 3.16, will perish. These who are, are going to perish in the lake of fire. And then in verse 12, we read the ten horns which you saw are are ten kings who have received no kingdom yet. So the ten horns can't be the seven kings because five of the seven kings have already come. The ten horns in verse 12 are all future, and the ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour. That's a short time, the tribulation period. They receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. And so this takes us to the future kingdom. The seven heads are the, takes us through the chronology of anti-Semitic kingdoms, and the ten are the end-time manifestation of the revived Roman Empire that's based on that ten-nation uh, ten confederacy. And notice, folks, you will hear, while each Shubat is one of them, and there are other... Um, what they call Muslim background believers, anti-terrorists, that are becoming a little more vocal in their view that the Antichrist kingdom is Arab. It's Muslim. And they come out of a Muslim background, and when they read prophecy, they try to look at all these nations that are there. It talks about Persia and uh, uh, Turkey, uh, Libya, all of these are Arab nations. So, see, their conclusion is that the Antichrist has got to come out of a Muslim background. And there are those that argue for an Assyrian Antichrist. Remember, when you look at the Roman Empire, I mean, this isn't just a, a silly notion. When you look at the Roman Empire, the eastern half of the Roman Empire is all under Muslim domination. You have you have Muslims up in the Balkans, in Serbia, you have Turkey, you have Syria, Jordan, uh, I mean, uh, Lebanon, uh, Jordan, Egypt, Libya, all of North Africa. All that was part of the Roman Empire. That was just as much part of the Roman Empire, you all, we all think, when we think of the Roman Empire, we think of the Western Roman Empire. We think of Spain and France and Germany, uh, Britain. We think in terms of the European side, but there's a huge section of the Roman Empire that was North Africa and in the Levant, and that is all Islamic now. So they can make a very good argument. But the issue here is that the the beast is the eighth, and he is out of the seven. And Daniel 9 says that the people of the prince who is to come, the prince who is to come is the Antichrist, the people of the Antichrist destroy the temple. That's 70 A.D. Who were those? Those were the Romans. So the prince who is to come has to be European. So it, it doesn't fit with the technical exegesis of these passages to try to argue that Islam is the final form of of the um, uh, Antichrist kingdom or the beast at the at the end time. Okay, let's kind of wrap this up. The seven heads are said in ver- chapter 17 to be seven mountains, and these are seven kings. 
Five have fallen. This is uh, Egypt, Babylon, Assyria, Greece, and Persia. One is, that's Rome. One's yet to come, that's the revived Roman Empire. The ten horns are different. That's future. These are the ten future kings of the revived Roman Empire. Now, Daniel said that the little horn is the eighth that comes out of the ten, not one of the seven that uh, in terms of the conquest, but uh, after he conquers the three, but he subdues the three, so he's another one. He's really the eleventh. Now, we have a few minutes to sort of wrap up a lot that's here. I think we can do it. Then in verse 6 we read, Then the woman fled into the wilderness. Now, why is she going to flee into the wilderness? Just a minute. The woman, that's Israel, flees into the wilderness where she had a place prepared, it's already prepared in the plan of God, for, by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years on a prophetic calendar. Those three and a half years relate to the second half of the tribulation. They can't relate to the first half. The first half, Israel is in a time of peace based on the covenant that the Antichrist signs to begin the last week of Daniel, Daniel's 70th week. Jesus said in Matthew 24:15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, that's when the Antichrist desecrates the temple, halfway through the tribulation period. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, is an unsaved Jew going to flee to the mountains? No, he's, he doesn't believe Jesus any better than anybody else. But remember what we read in Revelation chapter 11 about verse, I think it was about verse 14, after the two witnesses had died and they're, they're taken to heaven. Then there's this great earthquake uh, that occurs and 7,000 in Israel die. And that's in verse 13. The same hour there's a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell in the earthquake. 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. That's when the remnant gets saved. They believe Jesus is their Messiah. This is, the, this is when they get justified. That's important to understand because when we get into what I'm going to teach next Sunday, we're going to understand there's a difference between when Jews get, individual Jews get justified and when the nation gets saved. Because that you had individual Jews that accepted Jesus as the Messiah the first time, but the corporate nation rejected him as the Messiah, so they went out under divine discipline because of the decisions the leaders made. What we're going to see at the end times is for the Messiah to come, the nation has to reverse its rejection to acceptance and call upon the name of the Lord to come and save them. Now, Matthew 24 points out that you have a huge number that are going to have to flee to the mountains for protection. And Jesus goes on to say, well, if you're on the housetop, don't go into the house to get anything. Don't try to get your clothes if you're out in the field. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. This is going to be horrendous. Pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the Sabbath, 
for then there will be great tribulation. We're going to ratchet everything up in the last part of the second half of the tribulation period, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, nor no ever shall be. It's just, we can't say this has ever happened in history. I don't know how the preterists do it. Matthew 24, 22, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. For the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Where do they go? Well, they head to a place the scripture calls Basra. Now, this is down in the area where Petra is, and the term Basra is usually translated as a proper name in the Bible, but it's a Hebrew word that means sheepfold. It's a place to protect the sheep from the marauders. And so they will head down. And one of the fascinating things that we discovered when we went to, um, you can't see it real well in the pictures, it's projected, but you can see right over here a little bit of a ledge. Actually, that is a gutter that's about this wide. And what they, what, what the Nabataeans did was they cut these gutters all the way down the chute on each side to capture the water runoff. And if they would get a half an inch of rain, they could fill up about 500,000 gallons of cisterns of water that would last them for a year. And in modern man's desire to glorify the past, they're rebuilding these systems so that if Israel flees in another 10 years or so, these water systems out in the desert will have been restored and working. Isn't God interesting how he works? Isaiah 34.6 identifies this area as the place where something spectacular is going to happen. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. This is going to be a place of a bloody battle. It's sated with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now, this is located here to the southeast of Israel. This is the Dead Sea area here, the Salt Sea. And this is in the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan out here in the middle of some of the most uh, barren country you will ever look at. Basra is approximately 45. I've seen some people put it south of Petra, and I was reading today uh, in Hebrew, Aramaic, Lexicon of the Old Testament. They said it was 45 kilometers north of Petra, so I'm not sure. Here's a modern map uh, showing the kingdom of Jordan and the location of Petra down here uh, far to the south. Here's Jerusalem up here. And so the Jews would have to flee down through Judah and across the desert, the southern Judean desert, to get to uh, Petra. This gives you an idea. See how brown it is from the satellite photograph? This is serious desert, so God's going to have to provide a way for them to get, uh, to get water and to protect them. And uh, this is a natural uh, fortification. Isaiah 63 says, Who is this who comes from Eden, who dyed garments from Basra? This one who's glorious in his apparel. It's talking about the Messiah. Traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness might say, this can only refer to the Messiah. Why is your apparel red, you ask, and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? Verse 3, this is how the Lord will answer. I've trodden the wine press alone. Notice that same imagery is picked up in Revelation 17. It was picked up by, um, uh, what's her name, who wrote, uh, um, Julia Ward Howe, who wrote 
the battle hymn of the Republic as she misapplied Revelation 17 to the American war between the states. I've trodden the wine press alone and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in anger, that is the nations, and trampled them in my fury. This is Jesus. Their blood is sprinkled on my gardens and I have stained on my robes. When he shows up at the Mount of Olives, his robes will be drenched in the blood of his enemies. Uh, verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury sustained me. I had trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. Jeremiah 49.2 talks about how God spreads his wings over Basra in protection of those that are there. So Revelation 12.7 goes on to depict this war again, and we'll just pick this up next time and uh, wrap up this section. But we get into this incredible picture of how God is going to protect Israel down in that barren wilderness that is around Petra and Basra now. And this is it's key to understand how this fits within the chronology of the end time scenario of the campaign of Armageddon. So we'll get there next time. Let's bow our heads, close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be encouraged by the way all these things fit together from the prophecies in Daniel, prophecies in Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah, and how they all fit perfectly into what is written by John, and everything makes such clear sense. Father, we know that, that your word is true. And so whatever else it addresses, especially in our own lives, we know that we can trust it with everything, trust you with everything. I pray that this might encourage us in our uh, confidence in your word that it is an integral unit, always fits together, never a contradiction. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.